You should have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 14. As we continue on, systematic survey of the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book, we have come to um, a section in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23 where the prophet Isaiah, who is called to the southern kingdom of the divided kingdom, the southern nations of Judah, is uh, issuing proclamations against some of the hostile Gentile nations surrounding both Israel and Judah. And he began uh, to speak um, proclamations against an upcoming nation of Babylon in chapter 13. Babylon had not yet risen to its full dominance in, in the world scene. Assyria was the main world threat, and they were the aggressor nation. Uh, but the Lord knows that Babylon is going to be raised up to uh, judge Assyria, and then also they're going to fulfill God's purposes in taking um, the southern kingdom into captivity. The word of the Lord first proclaims judgment against Babylon as a nation in, in its entirety in chapter 13, and then chapter 14 he moves and begins to speak directly to the king of Babylon in uh first part of chapter 14, he talks about the king of Babylon and uh, how, though he was, um, of course, at the top of his game in power and prestige, uh, wealth and dominance, when, of course, Babylon came to full ascendancy, yet he would be stripped of all that and he would come to the position of being just uh, reduced to nothing in the final judgment of the Lord. And then when we get to verse 12, he begins to speak to the king of Babylon in ways that leads us to an interpretation where he, we believe he is not speaking directly to the king of Babylon anymore, but the spirit behind Babylon, which in verses 12 through 15 uh, could only be one person. Uh, We know him as Lucifer. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. As we pick up the Bible and read it, as those who want to know the Lord and have had our eyes open spiritually, we are thrust into some spiritual realities, right? We have our eyes open to the wonders of God's love and his kindness and his mercy. There's an all-powerful, ever-living God who loves us and has given his life for us. And we see that, of course, in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. The Lord also, um, as he opens our eyes and brings us to spiritual realities, forces us into some other, some other truths that we are called to acknowledge and begin to, to live according to. One of those spiritual realities is that there is an enemy of our soul. Just as God loves us and is our creator and has a plan for our lives, you've heard those things, surely as God exists, so there is an enemy of our soul who has fallen and hates us and has goals for us, and we are called to uh, understand that and to live according to that. And, you know, I'd, I'd much rather spend my time looking at Jesus and, and uh, his glories and his grace and his mercy, but the scripture 
leads us where it leads us. And one of the topics we need to examine is this entity by the name of Lucifer. And so this morning we are going to look at the texts that are given to us in the Bible about his origin, about uh, his career, and about his destiny, and what we should do about it. Just part of the uh, spiritualities that we have to walk in as believers. So we end up in Isaiah 14, and the Lord gives us an insider's glimpse into the fall of Satan. Right away, we can know some things about Satan, and that is uh, he wasn't created in the state that we know him now. He's a fallen entity, but he wasn't created that way. God did not create Satan, per se. You've uh, probably confronted with the question from unbelievers, well, why did God create the devil? The truth is he didn't create it. Satan fell from a state of fallen perfection. We see that in Isaiah 14 here. Um, There's other passages that talk about Satan's origin and his fall, and we need to look at those also. Um, I have to warn you this morning, we have a lot of cross-references. I don't know if you see my Bible, all those little tabs. And I have an unfair advantage. All my cross-references are tabbed, and so I'm going to be moving quickly. Keep up. I'm sure there'll be paper cuts uh, um, involved in here this morning. Ezekiel 28 is where we're going. Ezekiel 28 also gives us a behind-the-scenes view into spiritual realms where the Lord talks about Satan's fall. The Bible doesn't tell us everything about Satan's origin. There are some mysteries about iniquity rising in Satan that we just aren't going to answer. Ezekiel 28, starting in verse 11, again, uh, this is a series of prophecies given by Ezekiel that were to uh, nations and then kings of those nations that were hostile to Israel. And then he keeps moving farther back, and he ends up talking to this king of Tyre. In verse 11, he says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, the diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. We could interpret this as being still talking to the king of Tyre. Maybe he's loaded up with bling, you know, and, you know, maybe he's got a garden called Eden. We don't know. It could be, but verse 14 Ezekiel 28 seals the deal for us. He's not talking to a human. He says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. The word cherub refers to an angelic being. And so it's pretty clear. He's he's not talking to a human. He's talking to an angelic being. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. Now, we see cherub, right? You probably are subject to the cultural image that's been handed to us by medieval Renaissance artists, a fat little baby with wings. Yeah, that's got nothing to do with the, with the realities of angelic beings. It's got more to do with pagan mythologies, idolatries of the Renaissance times. When we see uh, angelic beings in the scriptures and their physical description is, to, is given to us, uh, they are awesome. They are anything but fat little butterballs. They are uh, huge. They are very intimidating. 
six wings, you know, possibly. I'm not saying Satan's description that we have in those places of angelic beings applies. Those descriptions of angelic beings don't apply to Satan. But just to put that thing out of your mind about uh, cherubs, uh, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Between these two verses and the verses in Isaiah, we have a glimpse into Satan's origin. Here we see that Satan was created a very beautiful creature, spectacularly, wonderfully beautiful. He was uh, the seal of perfection in the middle of verse 12. And then it gives these listings of gems in verse 13. Now, we don't know whether or not these were part of his being or this was some sort of garment or adornment he had as a privilege to wear. These uh, gems that are listed here in, in Ezekiel 28 happen to also be present on the uh, high priest's breastplate. So it might, have been, it might indicate that he had some sort of special privileges or unique function. It says also that his workmanship of his timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. We don't know exactly what that means. People have speculated that part of his role in heaven might have been to supply music in some fashion for the worship of God. Again, we don't know whether that was a instruments that might have been uniquely his or if this was part of his being, that he might have been created with the ability to, again, out of his physical structure, produce worship music that would adorn the worship of God there in heaven. And it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Again, he must have had some sort of privileged function. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we see that there, especially at the beginning of Isaiah, remember we saw that in Isaiah 6, there was coals taken from the altar there in heaven. He must have had some sort of access right there. We don't know exactly what that means, but again, it's, it's unique, it's privileged. And then it says that he fell till iniquity was found in you. Now, Satan's actually going to fall four times, we see in Scripture. And we are touching upon the first one here. He is going to fall from his uh, state of perfection. And that's his first one, and that has already happened. There are three more falls of Satan that we'll touch upon. He's going to fall out of heaven. He's going to be thrown out of heaven, Revelation chapter 12. Um, he is going to be thrown and fall into uh, the bottomless pit, sealed up in chains for a thousand years. That's his third fall. Then his fourth fall will be that he will uh, be sealed up forever in the lake of fire. We'll see that in Revelation 20. But in his origin, he was great in beauty. He was full of wisdom, it says there, perfect in beauty. Isaiah 14 with Ezekiel 28, first it gives us in Isaiah 14 sort of the, in, the inner perspective on what happened to Satan. And again, there's a bit of a mystery here. There's a mystery of iniquity, the scriptures tell us. In Satan's heart, pride arose. That's hard to calculate out, being right there at the throne of God and being perfect or full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He had full knowledge that, that God, being the eternal creator, uh, that he was fully dependent on him, that he knew he was not God. And yet, somewhere in his heart, he became corrupt in pride. 
Isaiah 14 tells us those five statements he says about himself. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Um, Maybe because of his beauty, he felt, seems like, that he should also be worshipped. And he wanted to be worshipped. And then began to sell that idea to other angelic beings. Um, It says in Ezekiel 28 that, remember the end of verse 15, he was this perfect, beautiful thing till iniquity is found in you. And then it says, by the abundance of your trading, verse 16, Ezekiel 28, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. The mystery of pride and the origins of sin He became self-centered. He became the object of his own love and his own worship. He began to sell that idea, it seems like, by this terminology, the abundance of your trading. He began to, to call angelic beings in a rebellion against God to supplant God and to put himself at a status equal to God. And uh, that's rebellion and pride and you know, the, uh, pride is just a mystery in some ways. Uh, we can understand it, but I like what Andrew Murray has to say about this as he comments on pride and humility. He says, As God is the ever-living, ever-present, ever-acting one, who upholds all things by the word of his power and in whom all things exist, the relation of the creature, whether human or angelic, to God could only be one of unceasing, absolute, universal dependence. As truly as God by his power once created, so truly by that same power must God every moment maintain. The life God bestows is imparted not once for all, but each moment continuously by the operation of his mighty power. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is, from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of the creature, and the root of every virtue. And so pride, or the loss of this humility, is the root of every sin and evil. Um, The root of every sin and evil, the removal of God in the place of um, the highest and most important place in heart and mind. Uh, To supplant that with self. Um, that's what happened in the heart and mind of Satan, and he fell. He says, uh, you sinned, therefore I cast you out, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. We're still in Ezekiel 28. I cast you to the ground, I laid you before kings that they may gaze at you. And then he goes on from there, and I think he switches back to talking to the king of Tyre. Um, okay, in the origins of Satan, there's, there's a question there. When did that happen? We don't know exactly. Uh, the scriptures really don't tell us. They aren't, they aren't clear. Um, there's some things we can say about um, and speculate about the origin of Satan. 
Um, when we get to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see the creation unfolding, the, the six days of creation. There's no mention of, of creation of angels in there. Um, all that we know is that in Genesis chapter 3, suddenly there is an entity, a serpent, through whom this, this Satan, the deceiver, is now speaking. And uh, we aren't given... Uh, from that point, really, in origin of Satan. It's much later in the scriptures when we run into these texts in Isaiah and Ezekiel, who begin to, to see his origins. The only other place where his origins might be able to be uh, placed would be in Job chapter 38. If you want to find Job 38. Job 38, God is... Um, showing up in Job's trial and begin to question Job, bringing some some questions that Job can't possibly answer. And um, Job had been speculating about what God had been doing and trying to reason it out. God begins to ask Job some questions. Verse 4, he says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out... Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its, its foundations fastened? He's talking about creation. Or who laid its cornerstones, in verse 7 is what we're interested in, who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? There is a reference in that statement and those questions about creation. It seems to imply that when God created, and even when he finished his creation, uh, there was a way in which um, angelic realms may not have been fallen yet. Um, now, that's not definitive, but um, it does say the sons of God and all the sons of God. And the term sons of God is a, is a reference to angels. Does that mean Satan is unfallen at that point at the end of creation? Maybe. That's, that's the best you could say. Um, but he does fall. I personally believe that he did fall after the creation. You make up your own mind about that. Um, and I go back to Genesis chapter chapter uh, 1 uh, to make my case for it. At the end of uh, six days of creation, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. I have a hard time believing that God would call... Um, the state of the earth there, even though it was at its highest point in creation, still um, with Satan around and his angelic minions with him, that he would call that very good. So um, I place it there after the creation. The only other reference we have in the scriptures is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is speaking and uh uh, he is greeting the 70 after they have come back from their appointed task of going out to preach the gospel, and they're full of stories and joy. 70 returned with joy, verse 17, Luke 10, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That might be a reference. We think that is a reference to Satan's fall. And when, again, we can't place that anywhere. He doesn't give us a time for that. But, um, uh, you know, the, the Bible is kind of murky on the origins of when that happened. And I, I think in some ways it's irrelevant. Um, other than um, 
to know that it happened and God did not create Satan in the state which we find him now. He is fallen. It's more important to us, I think, that we examine his career. Um, What is he doing now? What is he about? And uh, as we begin to look at that, um, we see the best description of that in John chapter 8, where Jesus is um, in an argument with uh, a discussion, I should say, with um, Jewish leadership who are rejecting him. And uh, he is calling them to believe in him and believe his word. And um, they are leaning on their own pedigree of being Jewish descendants of Abraham for um, their righteousness. And he says, Abraham's not your father. Um, He says in uh, John 8, 44, uh, he says, You are of your father, the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's a really good synopsis, uh, encapsulation of the career of Satan. He is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Well, who did he murder from the beginning? Well, he murdered Adam and Eve. He got them to, uh, to fall into sin, and of course the consequences of that was that, and of course, death entered into the creation. Um, he, he inspired uh, their first children, right, Cain, to murder Abel. Uh, he certainly uh, drew some angelic, part of that angelic host with him. We'll see that in Revelation 12. They're all now sealed up in judgment, uh, awaiting judgment. He's a murderer. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He's also a liar, um, and I think this is where he does his most damage and what he's most known for, is that he is a deceiver. Uh, and, and this is what makes him a very dangerous liar, is that he's very intelligent. Um, he likes to operate in partial truths. And... Um, as, as, you, as you think about the, the nature of truth that it's given to us in the scriptures, it makes sense. We know some of those verses, right? Um, Jesus, in praying for disciples, said, Lord, uh, Father, sanctify them by your truth, and your word is truth. Earlier, he said, um, um, uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so what the Lord wants to do is bring us his word, his living word, and the power of it, and have us have that word work into us, bring us the knowledge we, we need about what he's done and, and the love he has for us, and then have it change us and, uh, and all the blessings of that. The Bible talks a lot about the beauty, the wonder, the power, the efficacy of God's word, the truth it is. And so that's where Satan focuses, I think, a lot of his time and energy is to get us to believe that which is not true. Because that's where the power of lies comes from. The power of lies, they, don't, they aren't living, they aren't powerful, those lies, but they supplant that which is living and powerful. And so when we believe a lie, it deprives us of all the benefits of truth. And that's where... Um, Satan um, has his uh, most effective, I think, 
uh, his most effective gains in lying to us. And we see that right from the beginning of his career. Genesis chapter 3. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Again, um, we enter into chapter 3 and there's the, the creation and suddenly Eve is talking to this entity, this serpent who was more cunning than any beast of the field. The first words recorded out of this, the mouth of this, this serpent, whatever he looks like, through whom Satan is speaking, is a challenge uh, towards God's word. Has God really said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he, he deceives by contradicting God's word, challenging God's word. Uh, he goes on there in chapter 3 to say, um, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows that if you eat of it, you'll be like him. And again, he begins to cast aspersions on God's character, begins to alter God's character in the mind of people so that uh, we will not believe that God has our best in mind, that he does not love us. Um, he wants also to, through his deceptions, his lies, his contradictions of God's word, he wants to offer spiritual exaltation through some other means besides God's will known through his word. That's exactly what he did in the beginning, right? And he's been doing that all along. He offered spiritual exaltation to Eve. You'll be like God if you supplant God's known will with your own. And so uh, he has been lying from the beginning and attacking humans that way. That's his career. We see this in Job. We go to the book of Job, Job chapter 1. We see uh, we have a rare glimpse behind the scenes uh, into the spiritual realms. Uh, Job, of course, being the wealthiest man maybe in the Middle East at the time of the patriarchs, um, very godly man. Um, tells us about it in the beginning of Job, and then it tells us in verse 6, there was a day, Job chapter 1, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. I don't know what present themselves before the Lord means, but they're there. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And, of course, he knows, obviously, and, you know, Satan um, just kind of gives sort of a, uh, dodge answer. So Satan uh, answered the Lord and said, "Going from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And so then the Lord says, hey, check out Job. And Satan you know, replies, yeah, he loves you only because you protected him. And, uh, and um, the only reason he follows you is because of all the good stuff you give him. Take all that away from him and, and he won't follow you. The, the the point of, of Satan's um, words there is that you're not worth worshiping and serving by yourself, and only because you've loaded him up with all kinds of presents does he love and serve you. So God gives Satan permission to strip away all of his worldly goods. All of his children are killed. All of his possessions are taken in one day. And then you go to end of chapter 1 in Job. Uh, Job responds to that with the famous... Uh, phrase, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. 
Uh, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Chapter 2, we go through the same thing, very similarly. Satan presents himself to uh, up there in some form. Uh, he engages a conversation with, with the Lord about Job, saying, he worships you only because you've now protected him, and let me take his health away from him, and he'll turn on you. Um, I think in Job chapter 1, we, again, get a good, get a good read on Satan and his career. Um, he likes to attack us uh, physically and emotionally, and he'll then attack us again physically, and then attack us again emotionally. Um, he knows that humans are fraught with weaknesses, and we don't have the perspective uh, into the... Uh, um, the realm, being, being creatures of material um, in this world, um, he knows that we're subject to bad interpretations of what's going on around us. And so he attacks physically, and then he suggests things about God's character, about that the difficulty that arises out of the physical attacks. Again, he wants to move people away from trusting in God. And uh, he lies and uh, he wants to deceive us. Um, we see that in the New Testament um, as we go forward in the scriptures. Go up to Mark chapter 4. Uh, we see Jesus um, um, tempted by the enemy. In both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temptations of Jesus immediately after his baptism were given to us. And Satan comes and tempts Jesus in every way. Um, and Jesus, uh, being our champion, overcomes them all. And uh, in, in every fashion, Satan tempts him. Tempts him physically, turn the stones to bread. Uh, tempts him emotionally. Hey, throw yourself down from the temple and there'll be cheering crowds to greet you there. And it tempts him spiritually. Worship me. And, and Satan uh, tempts Jesus that way, and the uh, Lord overcomes all of them. Uh, and then Jesus goes forward, and um, after overcoming the devil, and begins in his teaching to give us glimpses of Satan's career. Um, as we go forward in Mark chapter 4, uh, the Lord begins to lay out parables, and we see him there right at the beginning of the parables. He says in, in Mark chapter 4, you're familiar with the sower and the seed parable. Jesus says, verse 2, verse 2 and 3, He taught them many things in parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. We're not going into all the parables, but we are recognizing that Jesus introduced the career of Satan into the awareness of the disciples very early in their training. You're going to go forward in the Lord. You've got to be aware of this, what Satan is going to do and where he's going to show up. And he explains it. Uh, later on, when they were alone, the 12 asked him about what it meant. In Mark chapter 4, he says, verse 14, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. 
So um, we see the tools that he, Satan uses. He uses deception. Uh, he uses um, contradictions of God's word. He attacks us spiritually. He attacks us emotionally. attacks us physically. Uh, and here's, here's his goals. We get his goals revealed here in these parables. Here's his first goal. He does not want people to be saved. He doesn't want anybody come to the realization that God loves them and has provided a free gift of salvation for them in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And then God stands ready and willing to forgive anybody right here, right now. He doesn't want that. He says, he says Jesus reveals that when the word is sown, when you're out just speaking the word to your friends, your families, your co-workers, part of that essential awareness, spiritual realities, a disciple in Jesus Christ, is that when we sow the word, the enemy's going to attack that word in the people's hearts who are hearing it. It's just going to happen. It's his goal to keep them from believing. Um, now, as we read the rest of those parables, we know that some get saved. Some of us, you know, some people get saved. You got saved. You're sitting here. I got saved. There's other people who are going to be saved. And so uh, Satan fails in that first goal uh, when somebody does come to believe, put their faith in Jesus Christ. But he's not done. He has a further goal. And Jesus reveals that in another parable. In Mark chapter 4, go to verse 30 says, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, and a lot of this imagery of sowing and seeds ought to be familiar to us from the first parable. And Jesus, in that first parable, says you got to understand the first one to understand the other ones. So the meanings he placed on the first one, it's implied that all those meanings carry through for understanding the other parables. Uh, when it's sown on the ground, it's smaller than all the seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Uh, that ought to be alarming to us uh, in a couple of ways. Um, you know, to sell Satan short is a big mistake. If we think Satan is done after he fails to keep somebody from believing, you know, even in Jesus' own temptation, after he finished those temptations, Scripture says that Satan left him till a more opportune time. He's coming back. He's coming back to work towards his second goal, and that is in the, in the hearts and minds of disciples, he wants us to keep us from going forward in the Lord and keep us from growing. He wants to, he wants to get us off track, as the terminology goes. And here, the picture of the mustard seed shows us that he wants to work from the inside. He loves to work from the inside of overgrown, bloated religious systems. And uh, uh, he loves to get inside that again and work with his tools of deception, contradicting God's word, uh, and sowing doubt and assassinating God's character from the inside of religious systems. We're not, we're not, uh, we, we need to be aware of that. Um, part of, of the spiritual dynamic that we live in, 
part of Satan's goals in his career. Uh, we actually see this again in explained to us in Matthew 13. Let's go backwards to Matthew 13. Another parable, uh, parable of the tares. Uh, the parable. We don't have time to read all of it, but there's a farmer. He goes out. He sows good seed in his field. He goes out and watches it grow and notices there's weeds growing in there too. They had to have been deliberately planted. And so uh, verse 36, chapter 13, Matthew. Then Jesus sent the multitude away, went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable that tears in the field. And he answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Um, Satan loves to sow bad doctrine, false religious systems. He loves it. He operates heavily in that that paradigm. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. It tells us that as time marches on and we get uh, further and further in this church age, that that's going to become a major theme in the last days. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Uh, Satan, Satan loves to operate in bad doctrine. Uh, false religious systems. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. No man comes to the Father but by me. Every other alternative and corruption and, and, and alternative and alteration of that is a lie of Satan. All of them. That makes it rather exclusive, doesn't it? I mean, that, that puts every other religious system in the camp of the tares that are sown in the world. Satan loves to operate in that and, and to get you to rationalize. Well, they can't all be going to, you know, they can't all be going to hell. I mean, these are good people. I didn't say it. The scripture says that. Satan also operates um, in some other ways, not as only sowing bad doctrine in the world. Um, Luke chapter 4. Something in in the temptations of Jesus gets overlooked um, where he uh, is recorded as speaking to Jesus. Luke chapter 4, one of the temptations was to, uh, well, it says in verse 5 and 6, Luke 4, the devil taking him, him, being Jesus, up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you the next couple of phrases are important to what we're understanding. And their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Satan has at his disposal the wealth, the power, the prestige of the world, and he uses it to further his goals. He gives it to individuals who are operating or useful to him in his goals, even if they're completely ignorant of him being uh, him using him that way. And that, that makes a lot of sense to us, doesn't it? I mean, we see, um, you know, the horribly self-centered, rampantly anti-Christian celebrities and mouthpieces in the news and in, in, in media 
and they're, you know, they're successful. They get all the time on TV. They get all the wealth, all the power, all the prestige. That's Satan rewarding those who are doing his deeds and doing his, furthering his goals. Now, am I saying that every rich person is under Satan's control? We're not saying that. Is every celebrity, you know, doing the, uh, fall under that? No. There's plenty of people who are rich and celebrities who love the Lord. But Satan has at his disposal the wealth, the power, the prestige of the world, and he uses it to further his goals. Um, more than this, also, Satan works in uh, the realm of spiritual experiences. Uh, he loves to give um, people spiritual experiences, and just from the, what they are seeing in their mind or their eyes, he loves them to believe that it's the truth and how vulnerable humans are to beauty. Just because something's beautiful doesn't make it true. You know, they use that in to sell shaving cream, uh, you know, and your car. They'll put a beautiful person in front of a car and say, buy this, because we're just so, we're led by beauty. And so we go into the spiritual realms. Second Corinthians chapter 11, Satan knows that, says, um, uh, there are false, false apostles, deceitful workers, 2 Corinthians 11, 13, 14, 15, uh, they're transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder if Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. You heard of um, spiritual visions that um, mouthpieces have ha had, and they talk about seeing a light, and it told me all these things, and it was beautiful. And then they go forward and they become a disciple of whatever that message is. And it's completely unbiblical. But because it was beautiful, it had to be true. Uh, Satan knows that we are really, really vulnerable that way. His names, I think, uh, Satan's names that are given to him in, in Scripture are very indicative of his uh, career and, what he, and his nature. Bible, you know, Bible names are that way. Jesus' own name is a shortened, an English shortened form of uh, Jesus, which is a Greek form of, uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish form of Yahshua, uh, Yehoshua, which is a shortened form of Yahweh Shua, the Lord of Salvation. So Jesus' names mean the Lord of Salvation, very indicative of his character, right? Who he is and what he's come to do. Satan's name. Satan, the word Satan, means, uh, adversary. His other name you see him called all the time is Dia, the devil. Diabolos in Greek means a slanderer. We see that. Uh, he does that all the time. Zechariah chapter 3. A vision of uh, Satan's actions, his career. Zechariah 3, 1 says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Satan is our adversary. The Lord's adversary. He does things. Uh, he wants to lead people in pride and in the delusions of pride, the self-worship of pride. And, he, and he's not only working with individuals; he's working with nations. We saw that right out of Isaiah. Um, the whole nation is led 
By the, by the uh, mandates of the king, the king's under the influence of the demonic realms, unwittingly maybe, but he's leading nations in pride. Uh, we saw that in, in Isaiah chapter 11. You who weakened the nations. Um, this isn't surprising to us, right? First John chapter 5 says, The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. First Chronicles chapter 21, um, we see this even in God's people. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. He's getting the leadership of the nation to act in rebellion against God. Daniel chapter 10. Um, it's got to, you, should, you should go to Daniel chapter 10. I know you're trying to keep up with me page flipping, but go to Daniel chapter 10 and you're going to see it's on page 787 if that's helpful. <laughs> Daniel chapter 10. We see this... Um, odd view into the spiritual realms. We see a glimpse of it in Isaiah and Ezekiel where he talks to the prince of Babylon and the king of Tyre. Daniel chapter 10, uh, Daniel has been fasting for three weeks and is met by an angel who comes to give him spiritual revelation. Um, Verse 12, he says, Do not fear, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble your words before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. What does that mean? I'm sure they're not having lunch. Um, Withstood him 21 days uh, in opposition. Some high-ranking, angelic, uh, fallen creature opposing messenger from God to get to get to, to Daniel. But then it says, And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been alone, left alone there with the kings of Persia. There's more of this also in the same chapter. Verse 20. Then he said, the angel talking to Daniel, Do you know why I have come to you? In other words, Okay, there it is. I've given you all that you need. And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. And so um, there is a way in which Satan is assigning authority to high-ranking demonic entities, and those entities are are in charge of steering nations in rebellion and pride against God. Is there a prince of America? Uh, you know, it seems like he's busy these days. Um, so Satan is leading, um, leading uh, individuals and nations. Bob Caldwell, a pastor from Calvary Chapel in Boise, Idaho, says this, When it comes to the self-delusion of pride, nations are no different than individuals. The collective pride of nations seeking to rule over other nations has sustained massive bloodshed and destruction since the beginning of human societies. Here the prophet warns the Gentile nations about their delusional pride against each other and against God. Is that weakening the nations is what we read. Um, More than this, uh, Satan wants to control individuals in specific times. We know Luke tells us that Satan entered Judas. 
That's frightening. Uh, in Revelation chapter 13, we see that ultimately he's got his perfectly possessed individual in the beast. It tells us in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the coming of the lawless one is according to the power of Satan with all uh, lying signs and wonders. He wants to use individuals in a, uh, if he can, and, and he uses them to, for his own purposes. Um, you know, I think in, when we get to Revelation chapter 12, we can park all of anti-Semitism under that, under that Revelation chapter 12 of, of steering people. Um, okay, so the career of Satan. He is out to keep people away from the Lord. In, in, the, in salvation, not to hear the salvation, to reject it. And he wants to keep believers from going forward in the Lord once they have come to that. Um, he uses lies. He contradicts God's word. He uh, assassinates God's character. He knows we are vulnerable to bad interpretations of events. He attacks us phys- physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um. What's his destiny? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is immediately after calming the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee. He steps off onto this, this northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee and is met by the man of the tombs. There's actually two of them. When he had come to the other side, verse 28, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Listen to what they say. Suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What's his destiny? They know their destiny. Their destiny is at a point of time to be sealed up in judgment. They know that. That's what that means in that phrase. You're here early. Are you here to enact some of that ahead of the schedule that we know of? Let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and also Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, to start there, there's an uh, overreaching vision of Satan's activity on earth. And he's given in symbolic form as a great fiery red dragon. Israel is there given as a woman. She's bringing a child into the earth. Um, Verse 2, the the woman being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. And then verse 4 uh, gives us possibly a, a view into his um, his uh, back when Ezekiel said, "In the abundance of your trading," verse the first sentence in verse four, chapter twelve, of Revelation, I think, is a reference to that. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Remember, his judgment was being thrown to earth, where it seems like. This might be giving us a numerical value to um, how many went with him. It seems like a third of the angelic realm went with him. And so this great fiery red dragon is there opposing Israel uh, and opposing the entrance of Jesus into the world. Go over to Revelation 12, 
Um, um, Actually, yeah, we'll go to verse 12. Let's see where I want to be. Revelation 12, verse 12. Um, At this point, we encounter Satan in his second fall. He's being thrown out of heaven at this point in the tribulation. It says, uh, Rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, and woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Satan knows the time schedules that are written in the word about when he will be judged. And at that point, when he is thrown out of heaven, he knows, wow, I've only got a very short period of time left before I am sealed up in judgment. Let's go to Revelation 20 now, and we'll see how that, see the destiny of Satan Uh, verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 20. This is after the end of the tribulation, um, the beast and the false prophet who have uh, led uh, the the world's armies to gather um, in Israel have all been judged. Then it says, verse 1 of chapter 20, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who was the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more uh, till the thousand years were finished. This is third uh, fall. And he was sealed up during the, what we call the millennium, a time when Jesus comes to earth bodily and uh, restores the earth to um, an uncursed state and uh, one of the highlights of that millennium is that Satan, and it, and it implies that with him is all of his, his minions, they are all restrained and have no access to the earth for a thousand years. But uh, that's not his final destiny. It says, uh, uh, after that, it says, but after these things he must be released for a little while. Verses 4, 5, and 6 of 20 Revelation 20, very brief statements about the millennium, and then it says in verse 7, Now, when the thousand years had expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, uh, whose number is the sand of the sea. And so during that time of prosperity on earth, the human population explodes, you know, no wars, no famines, um, uh, everything good about human beings is is exalted. Um, there's no uh, starvation, anything like that. The population of the, of the world, huge by the time you get to the end of a thousand years uh, of that, that state. But Satan is released at that time, and uh, those people who have never known anything but enforced righteousness on the earth are given the opportunity to choose. And it says, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. That would be Jerusalem in the millennial state. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It's a very, it's a non-battle, isn't it? And the devil, here's his final state. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone 
where the beast and the false prophet are. And this is this is the description of his final state. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, Jesus mentioned this lake of fire in his uh, sermon on the, uh, excuse me, the Olivet Discourse. And he gives us just one phrase about it, um, which I think is we need to hear. And at the time when he's separating the sheep from the goats and he's consigning the wicked to their judgment, he says, he will say to those who on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The lake of fire was created for Satan. It was not created for humans. And um, um, that is Satan's final state, is to be sealed up in torment there in the lake of fire. Okay. Uh, that's the origin, the career, and the destiny of Satan. Um, we need to have those awarenesses uh, in our makeup of who we are as disciples. How do we respond to all that? Well, um, Ephesians chapter 6. We need to go to Ephesians chapter 6. Don't wear out on me now. Turn in pages. Come on. We're almost at the end. Don't fall over now. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 2 tells us, we're not to be ignorant of his devices. As disciples, we're supposed to have the awareness that there's an uh, opposition to us, and we're supposed to take into account, calculate out the fact that Satan's going to be working around us. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us, Finally, my brother, breathe strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Verse 10, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Um, you know, we were told in 1 John 4 um, that um, we are to um, find 1 John. It says, uh, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them, talking about the spirit of Antichrist in the world, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What's our response to this? Well, we're supposed to be aware of him, but we're not supposed to be afraid of him. We're not supposed to be obsessed with fear over him. There's two great errors you can make in, in, when we're thinking about the devil. And the first one, he's had a lot of success in, and that is to relegate his existence to mythology. In uh, critical higher thinking, oh, you know, the place is man's understanding above God's word. It's just a anthropomorphism of evil in the world. No, Satan's real. You dismiss him to your own uh, <coughs> your own harm. But the other the other um, error is to um, just see him behind every rock and every tree and, and to be locked up in fear because of him. No. Uh, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, we're told in James to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jude, um, uh, excuse me, um, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we can resist him if we, um, if we are properly equipped as disciples. Ephesians chapter 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Those are the rankings 
possibly, of um, his armies. He tells us to therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. What? How do we respond to the devil? Uh, well, we got to know God's word. We got to believe it and take it for what it says. Um, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, God said, "I'm saved. I'm saved." The lies that the enemy brings, oh, God doesn't love you. Not all of your sins are forgiven. You have to work out some of them yourself. Lies. He says I'm right. He says I'm righteous before him because of what he's done. I'm going to believe that. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, um, that means uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace comes right out of those, I think, um, the parables, as we go out and we, we sow God's word, we got to recognize the devil's going to show up and he's going to oppose us. It's okay, we're prepared for that. It's part of the preparation of the gospel of peace. We know how to handle him. We know, we know to expect him. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you be, you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. He's going to hurl accusations at him. That's his name, the accuser. How do you guard against those uh, accusations and those things? Faith, faith in God's word, faith in him, what he's done. I'm not perfect. There are things I rightly be, can be condemned for, but I'm not, uh, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm guarded against that. You're guarded against that by your faith. Uh, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. We're going to put God's word into our minds which is the word of God, and also praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Prayer, walking in the spirit, being in God's word, praying. These are all ways in which we arm ourselves, guard ourselves, cooperate with what God has done to equip us to walk in a dark world that we're opposed by Satan. We need to finish there. The origins, the career, and the destiny of Satan the Lord has told us about these things for a reason. We need to know them. We need to be equipped to handle him, and he has equipped us. We should know about him. We should not be afraid of him. Again, the great truth, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Don't fear him. Respect him, but walk in faith, praying in the Spirit, and we'll see the Lord do what he wants to do through us, even though that Satan opposes us. Amen? Let's stand and we'll finish there. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the light of your word. Help us to live in these realities and to go forth and proclaim your word and see you glorified in our lives. We love you, Lord, and we give you our hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen.